Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Science, Technology, and Society channel on the New Books Network. I'm John Traphagen, the host of this podcast. I'm also an anthropologist and professor in the Department of Religious Studies and the Program in Human Dimensions of Organizations at the University of Texas at Austin. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Kelly Smith and Dr. Carlos Mariscal, the editors of Social and Conceptual Issues in Astrobiology, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2020. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me on the SDS channel. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to talk with you about this interesting and timely book. Delighted to be here, John. I'm ecstatic to be here. (laughs) Okay. Uh, In the interest of full disclosure, I should begin by letting the audience know that I know both Kelly and Carlos, which is probably why Carlos is laughing, from various conferences and have also published papers as a co-author with Kelly. So I'm probably not entirely unbiased about their work. In fact, I'll be right up front. They both do really, really interesting work. And so I'm hoping we're going to have a fun conversation surrounding um, this very interesting book. So first, I want to um, provide a little bit of background on the editors. Kelly is professor and chair of the Department of Philosophy and Religion at Clemson University. He received his MS in biology, from, uh, followed by his PhD in philosophy, both from Duke University. Kelly's research is pretty wide-ranging, and it includes work on philosophical issues surrounding the search for life on other planets, the concept of genetic disease, the relationship between religious faith and scientific reasoning, ethical implications of new technologies, complex systems in developmental and evolutionary biology, and the origins and nature of life. It's kind of just some small projects that he does on his spare time. Um, Carlos also attended Duke, receiving both his MA and PhD, degree, PhD degrees in philosophy there. Uh, he's currently an assistant professor in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Nevada, Reno. Prior to his current appointment, he was a Hertzberg postdoctoral fellow 
in the departments of biochemistry and molecular biology and philosophy in Dalhousie University. Carlos's research focuses on astrobiology, and his recent work has centered around convergence, the direction of evolution, the nature of extreme organisms, the origin and meaning of life, and ethical issues regarding new biotechnologies. The book we will discuss today brings together a variety of perspectives related to astrobiology, including the historical background of the field, questions about how scientists define life, philosophical and ethical issues related to astrobiology, and social and legal legal implications of astrobiology. As we opened, I described the book as timely, and indeed, uh, as the number of confirmed exoplanets continues to grow, having passed over 4,000, it is an important time to be seriously thinking about the implications of finding life on other worlds from both social and conceptual perspectives. So I'd like to begin our conversation by asking what brought you both to this project and how you came to be interested in building research programs focused on the social and conceptual implications of astrobiology. And in doing this, I think it would be helpful for our listeners if you could actually define astrobiology. Okay. Well, I should start uh, by noting for the record, John, that while we have worked together a bit, uh, one of the reasons I think we, we make a good team is that you often think that I'm completely wrong and are not at all shy <laughs> about pointing out this fact. <laughs> so uh, I mean, to a well, you often are very good. So. <laughs> um, so astrobiology, I mean, the short answer of what astrobiology is, is it's the search for life on other places besides Earth. Um, but NASA formulated three big questions back when they first set up their astrobiology program. And most people cite those. I think it's a pretty broad way of thinking about it. So the three questions are, how does life begin and evolve? Uh, where is there life in the universe? And then what is the future of life on Earth and beyond? And it's really that last question that opens up things to the philosophers and the anthropologists and people like that. Um, I got involved in this stuff when I was invited to a panel that NASA was doing on the concept of life. And uh, I, to be honest, I hadn't really thought about it very much, but I was a philosopher of biology and they wanted somebody who would be able to think about weird aspects of biology. And I, I remember thinking this was a really interesting question that nobody was working on. So it was a very fertile field. And, you know, I also spent three days in Washington sitting at a conference table with a bunch of super smart NASA guys who understood all of my Star Trek humor. I thought I have to find a way to make this work. So um, it was a marriage made in heaven, you might say. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, no, I, I think, um, I agree with Kelly that I, these are some of the most fascinating issues, um, around what drew me, um, to astrobiology was that they were the people that were, um, asking the questions that I was interested in. And I think that, um, from my perspective, the reason that it's important and interesting to have humanists involved is that, um, there's a lot of humanist questions, a lot of philosophical, uh, perhaps theological or, or sociological questions that are uh, raised by astrobiology. And I think that it's um, in, in situations like that where those questions are raised, it's helpful if you get the people that spend all of their time thinking about those questions um, involved in answering them. Uh, and so, so I, I, you know, I think scientists are, are really smart and, and um, 
good at addressing some questions, but we, we need to have people from a variety of backgrounds involved. Um, and so I, I'm excited at uh, the possibility of being in this topic, um, in this area and helping uh, address really what the big implications and big consequences of some of these, um, this brand new cutting edge research could be. Yeah, it, I think this is one of the more interesting aspects of this this whole topic is that so much of it has been driven by really the the sort of technical and and um, natural science side of it, and only recently has there emerged a, a kind of a sort of broad awareness beyond a fairly confined group of people that you know whatever happens when it comes to astrobiology, whether it's we find life on Mars or floating in clouds of Venus or ET drops in one day and says, we're going to vaporize your planet. Uh, it's it's going to have an effect on us. Um, and, you know, there are clearly social and conceptual things that we need to be thinking about now before that happens. Um, I thought you kind of, you know, it's, it's interesting on in the very first page of, of the uh, introduction that the two of you wrote together, you state that, and I'm going to quote here, um, the discovery of life elsewhere would surely rank as one of the greatest discoveries of all time and would disrupt our sense of who we are and our place in the universe. It would be a gestalt shift, every bit as drastic as the Copernican or Darwinian revolutions. Um, it's a pretty grand statement, and I, I actually found myself wondering if that's actually likely to be the case. And, and I thought a little bit later in the book, Sean McMahon points out in his chapter that um, he says, what seems like common knowledge differs from person to person, laboratory to laboratory, and especially discipline to discipline, which is why an interdisciplinary science like astrobiology can be really, really difficult to get rolling and to have a good discourse in. And so I, I started thinking about this and I thought, well, aren't we really already attuned to the idea that we're not likely to be alone due to decades of science fiction and also various historical moments that, you know, like um, the discourse that... Uh, happened around the idea of civilization on Mars with Percival Lowell about a century ago. So I, it seems to me, at least, that um, this history makes the idea of our not being alone uh, almost more like a kind of well-duh observation than a gestalt-shattering one. And, and I wonder how you might respond to that. Um, I think that there's a, a variety of different possible axes to, to think about the response, right? So so you might be right that the emotional um, response to, of the public or the scientific community could be a shrug. I don't think that's true, but but suppose that that turns out to be the case. Um, I also think that there might be an intellectual response that we're not thinking about, um, where it'll prove to be extremely far-reaching. I mean, like the, the example I like to think about is, you know, there's been... Um, dozens and dozens of, of groundbreaking inventions over the past century, but the go-to example that we always talk about is, is placing a person on the moon, right? We lit a 110-meter tall cylinder of explosive fuel and launched three men a quarter of a million miles away and brought them back safely a half dozen times. And, and the reason that captures your imagination is, is not just that it's a feat of engineering, like submarines are a feat of engineering. It's that we can look up at the night sky and know that some of it is within reach. Um, and I think the similar thing would happen if we discovered that we weren't alone. We would uh, something that is central to our experience, something that is uh, we have thought of as static, will all of a sudden be a dynamic area to investigate. And so, even if the emotional response 
might be a shrug when it's first announced. I think the intellectual uh, ripples will will uh, persevere for for generations to come. So yeah, it's certainly yeah. I, I can I can see how it would um, be something that you know, let's say, intellectual elites and and technocrats um, are going to be thinking about deeply for a long time. But you know, we often talk in a kind of a collective about this affecting humanity. How will it affect the person you know living on three dollars a day um, in I don't know a, a, a developing country? And, you know, just trying to figure out how to get by, you know, when we talk about humanity as a whole, I wonder if this is really something that affects elites, uh, intellectual again, and, and sort of technocratic elites rather than humanity as kind of this, this broad concept. Well, you know, John, I think one of the things that makes this field really interesting is that it's, it's really the newest scientific discipline. And so it still hasn't completely gelled, even in terms of the kinds of core questions and core facts that everybody takes for granted. And when you talk about uh, public opinion, that that's also true. We, we can speculate about what people might make of this, but we don't really have any good data. In fact, uh, just last year, I finished a survey of Clemson undergraduate students trying to figure out what they thought about messaging extraterrestrial intelligence, METI, which we'll probably talk about later on. But, um, the results are complicated. <laughs> we were trying to test David Brin's hypothesis that the more people know about this prog- program, the less likely they are to support it. Um, but that doesn't seem to be the case. So, you know, it's, it's on the one hand, you can certainly argue that this is not science in the hardcore sense because we don't have a lot of data to really address some of these questions. Um, on the other hand, the reputation of astrobiology that that was really in play even just 10 years ago, that it's a fringe discipline that's easily confused with UFOlogy. Um, that's beginning to fade. And it, it's beginning to fade, I think, partly because of books like this. There have been a number of books that have come out in the last 10 years that really argue pretty strongly that you know these are questions we need to start thinking about in a systematic way. Personally, you know, even if all we discover is alien microbes on Mars. Uh, I, I don't see how that can't be considered a monumental discovery. And I think that the reason that's not obvious to some people right away is they think, well, why should I care about microbes on Mars? What they don't realize is that finding microbes on Mars almost certainly indicates that the universe is chock full of life. So it's not the microbes on Mars per se you're excited about, it's the fact that the universe seems to be teeming with life. And it's a good bet from there that much of that life is going to be intelligent and sitting around doing the alien equivalent of podcast, asking questions about exactly the kinds of things that we're talking about right now. And so I just, for the life of me, I can't understand why someone wouldn't consider that to be an incredibly important question deserving of careful analysis. And what you make of it is, I think, debatable. I, you could say, well, if we're just a drop in the cosmic ocean, then nothing humans ever do on Earth is worthwhile. So my postmodern friends can can wallow and sturm and drong about that. Uh, but you could also think that uh, it's just amazing that that we're in a universe that's that's producing this kind of rich complexity and intelligence and culture. Um, but to shrug and just sort of say, "Ah, eh, who cares?" Um, that strikes me as weird. 
That said, just the other day, I posed pretty much this exact question to a science and values class I'm teaching, you know, and I was really surprised. About half of them basically figured that if we discovered alien life through, say, SETI, where it's, you know, radio communications, they're not orbiting the Earth, they just didn't seem to think it was that big of a deal. And when I asked them why, they, they basically said, because it doesn't have any impact on my life today. So unless the mothership comes and orbits the Earth, it could be that a large percentage of humanity just doesn't care, which I find puzzling, but that could be the way it works. Yeah, sometimes uh, that that's fascinating. I, I, I sometimes think about um, when people have this response um, of not thinking that something matters, that really what we're having is this clash of values in terms of what we think is worthwhile and, and the situations where we don't have these clashes of values, like investing in um, healthcare or in bettering people's lives are because we all share the same values. But I think that there's some uh, deeper values that we might all share about um, the importance of life and, and the importance of um, no, like our place in the universe that um, I, I don't think, uh, to, to take a line that you said earlier, John, um, that it might just be an, a question for intellectuals. I, I do think that there's something that connects deep to the heart of what it is to be human, um, whether it turns out that we are uh, uh, alone in this condition of, of being aware of our lives, uh, so to speak. Yeah, I, I, I think I, I agree. I, I find, um, for me, I, I guess part of what always, you know, concerns me when we get into this conversation is the way humans are such a complicated group of, of beings. And, and I often wonder how, how we really might react to this. I, I'm inclined to think also that, that it will be in some ways a, a very profound moment. Um, however, the, the depth of that that import may not really be visible for some time. I think initially, for me at least, I think um, you know intellectual elites will be thinking a lot about it, and other people will kind of go back to their lives. And I think you know Kelly, your comment that half your students would be like, "Yeah, whatever." Um, that's interesting, but I think that actually, to me, I think you know, I, I often think about the the Apollo um, program, and you know, we went to the moon, and. Then everyone's like, oh, okay, fine, been there, done that. And and we just lost interest completely. And, you know, to me, that's always sort of a, a, I guess, a struggle with this because I think this is a really important thing. And yet I wonder how much other people will actually, um, you know, go there with this. Sometimes um, people will surprise you. Uh, Brian Green has a paper where he tells what I think is a great story along these lines. He He went to some tiny little island in the middle of the Pacific where, you know, people are living on a dollar a month or something like that. And one night they're looking up at the stars with some of the people that live there. And uh, they say, is it really true that mankind went to the moon? And he said, yeah. And they think for a while and they say, I think we should go back. <laughs> so, you know, you would think that these people wouldn't care about those kinds of things, but apparently to them, that, that was an important consideration. So you just, it's hard to, you know, assume. Right. And, and I think, um, I mean, there's something about the, uh, the frog in boiling water, right? Like uh, you, you toss them in right away and they notice and it's scary, but like we, we become accustomed to our surroundings. Um, if 
you you become accustomed to the the way the world is uh, characterized around you, and, and if it happens that um, we went to the moon and it changed how people thought about things from before 1960 to after 1970, let's say. But now that's the water we're swimming in. And um, whether or not people are actively aware of it every moment, I I think is a different question. Um, I I do think that it changes something fundamental. um, And and I think the same thing would happen with discovery of life elsewhere. Yeah. I think it can happen in very subtle ways too. I, I, um, think back to, you know, I'm, I'm kind of old. And so I think back to growing up in the sixties and, you know, at that time, the moon was a very distant place. And I don't think we think of it as a distant place anymore. I think that's changed. I I think we see it as right around the corner and, and that's not to say it isn't difficult to get there and that it requires, you know, you know, considerable effort to develop the means to get there, but it, it doesn't seem like this really far away place. And that's a, I think a subtle way our perception has changed about how we are related just to other objects in our own solar system. Um, I, I, I want to, you know, kind of turn on this a little bit because I found this section um, in which you, you know, discuss the, there's a section of the book that the definition and meaning of life is discussed. And I found this to be really quite interesting um, maybe in part because we often don't really spend a whole lot of time, you know, in, in general thinking, contemplating what life is. We seem to know it when we see it, but once you start really thinking about it, it it's not so clear. And so I wonder if you could tell our, our, our listeners a little bit about some of the problems that we have in defining life that are addressed in this section. And I'm, I was particularly interested in Lucas Mix's idea about the boundaries of life being vague and the possibility of astrobiology being a launching point for discussions about biological ethics related to this kind of vague issue of boundaries, um, even it, as it relates to very earthly concerns such as abortion. I, I, I thought this is a very interesting way to think about what astrobiology can do. On the one hand, it, it, it obviously raises these questions about life elsewhere, but also challenges our thinking about what constitutes life in general, which then becomes very important for us. Yeah. You know, the, the question of what life is, is I think a really good example of how every scientific discipline has these boundary questions that are really philosophical in nature and that the scientists themselves don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. So every single chapter in any biology textbook you pick up has a quote unquote definition of life, but it's a horrible one. I mean, basically, basically what it amounts to is it just lists common properties of life on earth without ever really thinking carefully about what life in other contexts might look like. Um, so, you know, I use it all the time with my students as an example of how philosophers are not completely pointless. I've been thinking about this question for probably 12 or 13 years, and I now have a pretty good sense of what life is not. (laughs) And I have a tenuous, maybe slippery hold on what life might be. But I think with respect to Lucas Mix's suggestion that it's not a clean category, I think that's, that's almost certainly correct. Um, the only reason that that's counterintuitive to people is because they're used to thinking about science as a field which has rigorous definitions for all of its categories. Um, but life, at least as far as we know, life only occurs through evolution. And evolutionary biology is driven by diversity. So if there's no diversity in a population, there is literally no evolution, at least no evolution by natural selection. So 
um, you're never going to be able to get life without that being an aspect of a system in which diversity is absolutely central. And anybody who's ever brought a field guide out to try to identify something in nature knows this because the bird or the tree or whatever you're looking at, it never looks exactly like the picture of the field guide. And you always end up having to read the notes and and ask yourself, well, is this a seasonal variant or is this the northern version that's somehow way beyond its range? That's just the way life is. Biology blurs all lines, right? Um, so there are a number of people who are thinking about life who believe that it's it's not an either or, it, it's a continuum, that that what you have are things which are more or less alive or, or maybe better and worse represent the exemplar of life. So one example I like to use with my students to get them upset is to ask, you know, whether the sun is alive. Um, the sun certainly hits a lot of the points on the checklist in the first chapter of biology. It's, it's homeostatic. It has an energy metabolism. It reproduces in a heritable fashion. I hope you can hear the scare quotes there. Uh, because when, when a star goes nova, it seeds the local environment with a very distinctive mix of heavy elements that it's created. And that has an influence on the kinds of stars that form afterwards. You might call that their children. So to me, the question is not so much, you know, are viruses or stars alive or not, but in what ways are these things lifelike and in what ways are they not? And then trying to figure out which of those ways might be more or less important than others under certain different kinds of assumptions and context. And this kind of thing has lots of implications in ethics. Uh, you know, the, the abortion debate is a great example because in my experience, people like a clean boundary there, which is that in itself is an interesting psychological question. Why people are so drawn to clean boundaries and assign that such an enormously high value. But people like clean boundaries in abortion because it allows them to pass unambiguous laws. So if they can say that you know human life begins at conception, then they can pass laws that pr- that protect you know a, a zygote or whatever as long as the their conception has occurred. But really, a, the Supreme Court has taken the position that that's not really how it works. That human life, at least in the ethical sense, begins at conception, but it the the ethical value of human life is not fully realized until birth. Now, of course, a lot of people are uncomfortable with that, but that strikes me as a a pretty sensible way to approach a very complicated problem with no easy answers. I I think a lot of people, I mean, on that point, I I think a lot of people have this um, idea of uh, concepts as um, having necessary and sufficient conditions, right? right? So there's something that it is for something to be alive and everything that is alive has it and nothing that's not alive uh, doesn't have it. Um, and, and I think that uh, what Kelly was saying about um, people becoming a lot more comfortable thinking in terms of continua, right? M- not alive or not alive, but lifelike um, is, is something that is uh, worth investigating. And in our book, um, Emily Park has a an excellent chapter where she discusses uh, different axes of, of continua with respect to life um, that I think help uh, frame that issue in a really helpful way. You, you might also take an alternative approach like um, Cole Mathis does in, in another chapter where we think, well, okay, the concept of life is to um, uh, theory uh, rid- uh, riddled 
and and through sorry to, to theory laden and has uh, a lot of baked in assumptions. So we should introduce another term that maybe we can um, define technically uh, and make some advancements pragmatically, if not uh, conceptually. Right. So the term living state might fit that role. My own approach to this is that I think that there's a lot of different um, people with different, there's, there's different stakeholders that come at this question um, and they have different priorities as to what are the phenomena that you should save in a good theory or, or understanding or definition of life. Um, and because these people come from such wide ranging fields um, it's going to be hard for everybody to get into a room and, and come to an agreement. We might be able to, um, and, and I leave that open. I think um, Kelly I thinks <laughs> that we'd all come. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. Uh, we, I, there's a possibility that maybe we'll just like uh, beat everybody with a bat until they come to our side. <laughs> uh, you know, maybe one way to think about this, I, as, as, as both of you guys are talking, I was thinking about, you know, Kelly made the comment that, you know, the textbook definition of life is a terrible definition. And, you know, as soon as you said that, I thought, yeah, the textbook definition of culture and every introductory introduction to cultural anthropology textbook is just a really lousy definition. Um, and, you know, I think maybe one place to find common ground in these kind of interdisciplinary environments is to really emphasize the ambiguity of the thing that we're looking at. Um, you know, if we, we talk about life, well, it's, it's, it isn't something that we can just kind of clearly define the boundaries of and things like culture are, are the same way. In fact, I mean, culture and anthropology has, has gotten to be so difficult to deal with in some ways that you'll find anthropologists who actually write against using the concept because it, in some ways causes more problems than it, that it resolves because whatever it is we're talking about is, is very, very difficult to put any reasonable definition to. And, and so, you know, I wonder, I wonder about that if maybe, you know, one way to pull disciplines together that are so diverse is to really emphasize this issue of ambiguity. I, I don't know. What do you think? I really like that idea, John. I think, you know, I oftentimes say that education is a series of uh, carefully crafted lies and half truths. Because, you know, if a fourth grader asks you what an atom is, you're not going to talk about quantum states and electron clouds. You're going to do the thing where the electrons are little beads, you know, circling the nucleus, et cetera, et cetera. So there's nothing wrong with simplification for the purposes of education. But I think in a lot of disciplines, they're not sufficiently self-aware and they forget that fact. And so, you know, any biologist that really thinks about it will will realize that the definition in the, in the first chapter of their biology textbook is a bad one, but they never really thought about it. And one of the things that the humanists, I think, bring to the table is a much greater comfort level with that kind of ambiguity. So we don't, we don't shy away from it. We want to poke at it and, and explore it. And, you know, the fact that biology is not a new science, uh, but we still don't know exactly what its foundational object of study is. It's the study of life and we can't answer the question about what life is. So, you know, one, one way to take that is when people make fun of biology is not being a science. I want to respond by going, well, do you think biology is? Because you can't tell me what it is that you study. <laughs> yeah, that's, I, I, Oh, go ahead, Marcos. 
Uh, yeah, so, excuse me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, no, no. You're good. I, yeah. One of the things that that's fascinating to me, just uh, in my own life experience, is that when you talk to scientists that spend all of their time within a certain paradigm or, or worldview or, or um, subject, like they're they spend all day cutting up flies, they don't find these questions that interesting. But it's when people are are uh, working on areas that are in the boundary or where they their own theoretical choices are, are very obvious to them or things locked in deep time or space that they become really worried about some of these uh, questions and they become more sympathetic to um, philosophers and other humanists coming in. I, I'm thinking of the, the term that was introduced to me by Nathaniel Comfort, who's a, a historian of science, um, of conceptual slippage. And this is the idea where we all have a slightly different concept that we're working with uh, from our own disciplinary backgrounds and, and uh, life experience. But as long as there's enough overlap in what we're talking about that we're not um, actively uh, undoing work that other people are doing or bumping into each other, we can still make a lot of good progress, a lot of good work. Um, it's when the the slippage gets too far and like somebody is pushing for the sun being alive and other people are pushing for like whatever robots or that's I, I think what's what's fascinating about that example and I really like it I might I might steal it from my classes uh, is that uh, everybody listening to it thinks that the the concept has slipped too far but they they're having uh, trouble placing us to why. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off isn't that exactly where you know thomas kuhn brings us with his idea of you know paradigm shifts it's it's those moments where um the 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 conceptual frame seems to go outside of the normal that actually we start really making some significant changes in the way that we see things right i think that's right that's the kind of conversation you have with your graduate student over beer and if you do yeah. that enough, you might eventually go, you know what? That's more than just a thought experiment. That's actually kind of an interesting question that I should spend more time thinking about. So maybe we've started something here new in astrobiology, the study of the sun as a life form. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it didn't start with me, but yeah. <laughs> so let's, let's speaking of life forms, let's turn, I want to turn a little bit to uh, Carlos's chapter that he did with uh, T.D. Pete uh, Brunette, um, which focuses on extremophiles and some of the difficulties of characterization and categorization of these forms of life. It, it's kind of interesting that on the one hand, we have a hard time defining life, but then also when we see things that we 
seem to think are unambiguously alive, we have a hard time characterizing them and categorizing them. And so, you know, I, I wanted to ask, how does the the lack of a really straightforward conceptualization of extremophiles present problems in astrobiology? I, I think it's the same problem, just in a different uh, light, right? Like I've been making my way through um, a lot of different topics in astrobiology and, and running the same play where these uh, concepts that we thought of as straightforward are actually fuzzier and more problematic. And so I've thought about um, what life was, and I have a paper on that. And there's a, I have a paper on um, the origin of life, whatever that is, and trying to wrestle with those questions. This is really the next step where we think, okay, well, let's say we can all somehow come to an agreement on what life is. It's these things that we're pointing at. Um, well, what about the marginal cases, the, the things that um, are poking at the limits of, of uh, life? Um, and, and I think that when you start poking around that question, you realize that there's a lot of choices that we've made and, and some um, that we're making that overlap, right? We're, we've, we're thinking about extremes, but sometimes what an extremophile is, is relative to us or to a population, or we're trying to come up with absolute, not relative definitions. And so we have to we come up with what an extreme environment is first. And I think um, just putting a, a finger on each of those and realizing that that's, uh, we are, our concepts are slipping sometimes even within the same paper or the same paragraph. Um, and I think that uh, exploring how those uh, terms that we, where we thought that astrobiology might be safe, right? There's a lot of people that study uh, organisms that live in extremes and, and they seem like they're able to talk to each other. But um, I think, you know, uh, I like to think about it as orthodontics for, for concepts. I'm straightening <laughs> them out a little bit um, so, so that people will better be able to use them in the future and uh, not have them interfere with e uh, each other. Yeah, this uh, is my daughter, Sarah, will sometimes raise this kind of thing when we're having conversations about these sorts of things, which my house is very strange. So we do have these conversations, but, um, you know, she'll, whenever I start blathering about, you know, SETI or, or, you know, in possibilities of intelligence, her first response is always, well, how would you know that they're anything like us at all? <laughs> um, and then how would you even begin to think in terms of what it means for them to be intelligent? This is a 15 year old who's you know pushing her dad's buttons on this, but, but it, it's really an important point because you know what, what Carlos raises here is that when you use that word extreme, that, that is used as though it's, it's an absolute, but it's a relative concept, right? It, it might, it, it's extreme from our perspective, but from some other perspective, it's not. And of course, this really is, a, I think, a, a profound difficulty in astrobiology, whether we're talking about microorganisms or we're talking about, you know, intelligent, sentient beings. We've only got this single data point about what life is like, and that's our planet. And so we don't have, we really have no concept of what an extreme might be. You know, John, I, I hate to break the news to you, but I think Sarah is yeah. a budding philosopher. So you should probably yeah. make an effort to keep her away from people like me and Carlos, uh, lest you think I'm, I'm going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I think I, this is actually, I think, a good example of what uh, different disciplines bring to the mix. Uh, 
not to paint with too broad a brush, but you know, your typical scientist, you give them a definition of life or extremophile or whatever, and, and they tend to look at it and go, yeah, I can work with that. That That's consistent with what I want to do research on. And then they run with it. Whereas a philosopher immediately, uh, uh, Carlos talks about orthodontics. I, I tend to put this in terms of stress testing. We like to stress test concepts. You know, you give me an idea and I'm like, all right, well, let's see if I can think of a way to break that. <laughs> if I can come up with an example that, that will stump you or that you are unwilling to apply that, that concept in in the same way. And that sort of forces people to push the boundaries. Another thing about philosophers I think that's relevant here is that, yes, there's not a lot of data on a lot of these kinds of questions. And so one common reaction that scientists have is to throw their hands up and say, well, I'll start doing astrobiology the day after they discover an alien life form. And I understand that reaction. but philosophers tend to be stubborn about these kinds of things. And we're used to asking questions that are extremely difficult to resolve with empirical information. And so I think a second kind of question you can ask is, all right, a lot of these things we won't be able to solve, but how much can we actually figure out just by thinking very carefully about the data that we do have and examining the assumptions we make about why that data, for example, is not extrapolable to astrobiological situations? Because sometimes People assume that the data they have is not actually very good when, in fact, that assumption is problematic. Yeah, I th- actually think that's part of my daughter's point is basically, how are you going to recognize something as being alive or intelligent if you don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about these fuzzy edges and and trying to push the concept beyond our very localized concept of what life is or what intelligence is? Um, so there's a certain necessity almost to a kind of speculative side in astrobiology because uh, we can't we can't necessarily find what we're looking for if we don't stretch our our thinking and see where those breaking points might be. Send her to us, John. We'll make her we'll make her much much worse. That's <laughs> <laughs> that scares that scares the hell out of me, Kelly. It really does. It's good. It should. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So let me. Um, let me turn to your chapter, Kelly, which has the um, most interesting of titles, Medi or Regretti, Ethics, Risk, and Alien Contact. And um, somehow, not surprisingly, you open up the chapter with a comic strip that characterizes <laughs> the title of the chapter, which I thought was really good. Um, but I, I want, I'd like you to talk a little bit about why you chose to lead with a comic strip and and kind of what this title refers to in a much you know broader sense in terms of this issue of alien contact. Okay. Well, uh, there's a lighthearted reason, of course. Uh, you know me, John, so you know there's always a lighthearted <laughs> reason. I have a, an yes. academic bucket list of things that I've just decided I want to accomplish in my career. So I've published a paper that focuses on Monty Python, and I've got a paper that mentions all my kids. And one of the things on my list was to do a paper that begins with a cartoon. So that's one reason for doing it. But the cartoon really does capture a central aspect of the debate about messaging aliens. And so it's funny, but it also has a point. And I, I should probably explain what the cartoon is. It's, it's a Space Guy cartoon by Tim Rickard. And in the comic, uh, Space Guy is explaining to his friend what SETI is, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And then his friend asking him what METI is, the messaging extraterrestrial intelligence. Um, And then his friend says, well, what do you call it when aliens come to Earth? And then the final little panel on the cartoon is there are these green aliens with blasters pointed at Space Guy and his friend. And Space Guy is explaining, well, that's called Regretti. 
reckless endeavor goofily revealed earth to invaders. <laughs> um, so, you know, one, I, I know that John shares my sympathy, uh, has sympathy with this position. I mean, one of the things you find in, in the Medi debate is that there are scientists tend to split on this. There are scientists that think it's a terrible idea and scientists that think it's a great idea. And a lot of the scientists who think it's a great idea are extremely annoyingly dismissive about concerns that others have in terms of what could go wrong. And the main reason they give for that is they basically just assume that since these aliens are going to be technologically advanced, then they would also be socially advanced, which means they would be benevolent and peaceful and we would have nothing to worry about there. And, you know, I, I don't know if that's true or not. I suppose if I had to make a bet, that would be the best bet to make. But we don't have to make a bet. Um, and I would like to point out that uh, we don't really understand social developments in humans on Earth, which is the easiest case. So we are in no position to project to social developments in aliens that we've never met before. And, and to confidently assert what alien behavior would be like in these kinds of circumstances strikes me as just grossly overconfident. And that's just one of many of these unknown unknowns where we, not only do we not have the answer to a question, we're not even sure that we're asking the right kind of question. And given that, I, I think pushing to try to message aliens right now, which a lot of people are doing, there's some serious planning underway to do that. I think that is uh, dangerous uh, in the extreme and shouldn't be done. Yeah, you actually have, have brought this up at, at conferences and in, in some uh, some of your other work and surrounding this issue of risk. And, and I think you, you've made a very profound point about this that, you know, on the one hand, I think most of us who, you know, focus on this topic are, are in, at least, well, if maybe not inclined, at least hopeful that if, if you know, ET shows up, um, they're going to be nice and um, they're not going to want to eat our brains and that kind of thing. <laughs> but the, the problem is, if we start sending out messages, you know, and this is a point that you've raised is, well, who is the sender to make this decision on behalf of humanity? And even if the risk is infinitesimal, it could be a really small risk. There is not no risk. And the the other side of that is the consequences are potentially vast. And I, could you, you know, expand maybe a little bit on that? Because I always sure. thought that's a very interesting and important point. Yeah, well, you know, again, scientists like to deal with data. So uh, when you ask, when you raise this question with a bunch of scientists, they immediately get involved in um, a very you know complicated debate about the level of risks. And they start talking about the strength of radio transmissions and how far away these people would be and whether or not they would be able to reach out and touch us in the right kind of way. And it's basically a debate about what the level of risk is. And one of the things I have pointed out is the, the level of risk in many ways is completely beside the point. <laughs> it doesn't matter what the level of risk is in one sense. What you're really thinking, you should be thinking about if you're, if you're asking an ethical question, it's not what is the level of risk. It's what level of risk do people who are exposed to that risk find acceptable? This is the whole principle behind informed consent. If I'm doing an experiment, I'm supposed to tell people all the risks that might be involved in that experiment. It's not up to me to decide that a risk is low and therefore I shouldn't mention it. I tell them what the risks are and I let them make up their mind. So it may be, again, it's kind of unclear, but it may be that the actual risk 
an existential risk to humanity is, is relatively low. But on the other hand, it's definitely not zero. And, you know, things get speculative at this point, but in a way that that's the point, both sides are speculating. And when, when you get into a speculation fight, it's really hard to decide who's right. So you should be very careful, but let me, but let me go ahead and speculate, <laughs> right? It could be that, uh, <laughs> Aliens who uh, have maybe done this a few times before, they, they think very long term. And when they contact other aliens who are in their general neck of the woods, they just decide not to take any chances and to, to take them out before they can really defend themselves. So getting a signal from us would immediately tell them where we are. It would also tell them that we're very primitive because we're still using radio or laser communications. And they could just take a rock and accelerate it up to a large percentage of the speed of light and aim it at earth and then just wait for the flash in their telescopes. Because, you know, I don't know how likely that is to happen. And maybe 99% of aliens would never do that, but maybe we're in a bad neighborhood and our, our closest alien neighbor is like that. We just don't know. There are also ways in which they could mess with us without ever, ever actually being here. They could maybe send us information that unbeknownst to us, either interferes with our scientific development or maybe leads us down a technological alley that they understand, but we don't is incredibly dangerous. Um, there's a book, there's a series of books, the three body problem by Liu that, mm. that talks about some of these, uh, in, in sort of an interesting kind of way. So, you know, there is definitely risk here. And my view would be that the way to handle this is the same way we think about risk when it comes to, um, medical treatments. Uh, we don't normally consider it okay for a doctor to impose risk on a patient unless either they consent or there are extenuating circumstances like, the, you know, it's a child who's not capable of making a decision or something like that. And in this case, there's clearly nothing like consent because most of humanity is not even aware that this is possible, much less that it's about to happen. And the other conditions really aren't met either. So, I would say from an ethical point of view, this is simply unethical until the situation changes. And, and that's the way we should look at it. Um, yeah, I, I think I agree with Kelly on everything here. I, I really like the way he frames it. And uh, one of the fun things about this, I, I, Kelly and I have talked about this, about how, you know, if you're around the machine that's going to broadcast the signal and there's a button you have to push, would you push the button knowing that you're, risking all of life, even if it's a tiny risk. And I might be a moral monster, but I think I'd still push the button. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so I've argued in print that uh, this, this dark forest view that um, Liu talks about in the three-body problem, that we might just be in a bad neighborhood and um, you, you don't shout out just in the same way you wouldn't uh, be screaming in a dark forest because you don't know what's out there. Um, I've argued uh, that that's too rash, that the arguments don't um, work and that the odds are in our favor. And yet when I think about that, I'm like, yeah, the, the odds are in our favor when we play Russian roulette too. That's right. But I wouldn't want to play that. <laughs> Especially if so, the person's playing Russian roulette with my head. <laughs> right. <laughs> so maybe I'm a moral monster and that I'm playing Russian roulette with everybody else. But I, I'm, I've come to terms with it. Well, I, th I think, you know, and Kelly has also raised that that in, in some ways it's it even becomes a bigger issue because it isn't just about who's living here right now, but it's also our descendants, and you know what kind of moral responsibility do we have to them 
not to, you know, have ET show up and, and decide, yeah, you know, we, we just really need to put an, an interstellar highway in here and your planet's in the way. Um, you know, but we, it's more than just an obligation to us because of the size of the, the risk, the potential is, is, you know, the end of humanity. Um, let me, this, this is a really, you know, it's a really fascinating conversation. And, and I think, um, this sort of, uh, issue of contacting extraterrestrial, sending out messages is something that, of course gets talked about quite a bit, particularly on the, um, the sort of social and conceptual side of the, the astrobiology world. And, um, you know, Kelly, you, you noted that, that this is something that, is not uh, just, gee, it would be an idea. Can you talk a little bit about some of the the um, actual attempts there have been to send messages out there? Well, uh, you know, one interesting thing to say about that is we don't even know exactly how many have been made because there's no requirement whatsoever to record them. So, you know, we're not really quite sure what some graduate student who's in charge of a radio telescope at three o'clock in the morning might have done. But there've been something like 14 or 15 attempts that we know about. And most of those sort of fall in the category of publicity stunt. Uh, Tostitos beamed a commercial out into space. So aliens might know about our <laughs> snack chip technology. Uh, I think Lexus recently paid to have the sound of a Lexus engine broadcast to the heavens. And that's, you know, those are not serious kinds of attempts. And, and the, by the way, I should say scientists are not free of those. Every time they open a new radio telescope, this comes up as something they could do, beam a message and you know get the public excited. But there are a couple of projects that are underway right now that are much more serious. There's uh, Medi International, which is a collection of scientists that wants to do this in a very systematic way. So thinking through, you know, what are the systems closest to us that might harbor life? How can we most intelligently contact them? What would be a scientific approach to messaging? That's a much more serious attempt. And then there's this uh, amusement park millionaire, Bill Kitchens, who has the Interstellar Beacon Project. And he wants to beam the contents of Wikipedia to every star that he can before he runs out of money. And that was supposed to start last year, and it didn't. So I'm not quite sure what the status was, but he was, he is dead serious about doing this and he's got the money to rent the telescope time. And there are currently zero restrictions on this. It's, it's amusing. There are international agreements about what should we do if we get a message from aliens who can respond under what circumstances, but there are no restrictions on who can beam stuff into space to contact aliens, which of course makes no sense whatsoever, but that's the state of play. Yeah, and that's you know the fact that there is not only is there are there are there no restrictions. The problem is there isn't really any kind of a policy discourse on this. There are you know a few people who are interested in these issues within the the astrobiology community that talk about it, but it it isn't something that is being talked about in a broader sense. And yet, um, you know, at some level, even if the risk is very very small, it does pose a potential existential threat to humanity. It's not it's not zero, as you point out very clearly. And so, you know, how is it that someone can just, if they've got enough money, decide to do this without, you know, I mean, you can't, um, there's been a whole lot of discussion, you know, about uh, this, uh, apparently somebody near LAX who keeps flying in one of these um, <laughs> uh, 
what do you call them? The, the jetpack jet type yeah. thing around the airport, you know, and, and, and most likely once they figure out who does it, he's going to get arrested because there are uh, regulations about that sort of thing. And yet here's something that really is a threat to all of us, again, even if it's very small, and we have no regulations about that. Do you think, how do we get there? How do we get to a point where, where we start having this as a policy discussion? Well, I think, I think you identify the, the initial problem clearly, which is first you have to start having the discussions, right? You have to get enough people to recognize that this is a serious issue. And part of the problem there is just a sociological problem. A lot of people in the astronomy community who control the radio telescopes don't want to be associated with SETI. And so a discussion of METI is too close to SETI for comfort. And when you try to have a discussion about this, people tend to back away. It's not so much that they think it's not an important issue. They just don't want to get their name associated with it. But I think there are, I mean, you can have a debate about exactly what kinds of regulations should be in place. That's a legitimate debate. But uh, David Brin has suggested, and I think he's right, that you know, like one thing you could do is get an agreement, an international agreement that's, you know, doesn't have to be binding, doesn't have to have the force of law. But you get all operators of radio telescopes across the world to uh, agree that they will at least record what they are doing uh, and maybe notify all the other members of this consortium about what they are doing so that at least there is the possibility of some systematic discussion and critique. Whether you want to pass additional regulations that say, thou shalt not do this, uh, that's a different question. But right now, we don't even know exactly what's going on and it makes it very difficult to to start a conversation that's very serious here. I, you know, it's funny. I'm I'm thinking about this book that came out this year by uh, Toby Ord, where he's um, talking about existential risks to humanity, and uh, I I forget whether he thinks that it's one in six or one in ten chance that we drive ourselves extinct in the next century, but it's it's somewhere in that ballpark. And uh, I, I think about Medi, and I think, okay, it, you're right. It, it actually is an existential risk, but we mm-hmm. might be throwing it on the pile of other existential risks we're, <laughs> we're taking all the time. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, you know, on the one hand, you, you look at it and you think, you know, all right, the distances are vast. And of course, this is often the argument that gets made in favor of, of Medi is that uh, it's it's unlikely that ET can show up at our door and vaporize our planet. And, you know, based on what we know about physics at this point in time, it, it, all these things are very hard to have happen. And yet, as Kelly points out, the risk is not zero. And the the potential result is, is a truly existential threat to our, our species and to our world in, in that worst case scenario where it turns out that, you know, ET is, is the, the bully in our particular uh, galactic neighborhood and just decides to, you know, blow us up or just to mess with us even, you know? And so, um, and it's just, we know so little that there's no way to kind of even reasonably speculate about this. This has always been a problem from my perspective is that we do speculate a lot, but every speculation we ever have is based on what we know about ourselves because we don't know anything about anybody else. And so that's what we're stuck with. And that's, a, a, I think, a tremendous limitation in our ability to really kind of propel this conversation in a way that would allow us to think through what those risks might really be. But, but sometimes, John, what we do know about ourselves is illuminating. Like we know 
that human beings are very bad at thinking about probability in general. And in particular, we tend to systematically discount low probability events. So pretty much every disaster, every bridge failure, the Challenger explosion, you know, when they do the postmortem, what they find is it's not that the risks weren't known. It's that the people in charge of making decisions said to themselves, well, nothing's going to happen unless this happens and that happens and this happens and that happens. And that's, gosh, that's awfully unlikely. And then they assign it a probability of zero effectively when it's, it's really not. I, I have a friend who works in the airline industry and he works on safety issues. And he said, when he talks to pilots, a lot of times he'll be talking about how they need to change their approach parameters to an airport or something. And the pilot will say, well, in order for this to be an issue, you know, these 12 things would all have to happen at the exact same time. That's a one in a million chance. And then my friend will say, you know, we fly about a million flights a year, dot, dot, dot. So this book uh, covers a great deal of ground related to astrobiology and, and really a great deal more when it comes to issues such as defining life or thinking about ethical questions related to the search for life elsewhere. And despite the range of topics, I think the book really comes together very well. It's surprisingly coherent. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what themes that you see as really bringing the chapters together into this very uh, relatively coherent whole. Well, thank you for this, John. I, I'm very happy with how it turned out, too. I think uh, this is the kind of book that would be excellent for a graduate seminar or advanced undergraduates. And and I think... Um, my hope, at least, has been always to try to develop this into more and more of a field. And I think uh, Kelly agrees with this. Um, in in my view, the, well, I, I think what we were trying to do in the first couple of chapters was give some um, historical background so that people could catch up and on what the topics were and what the issues were and just to try to understand some of the, the discussions. And then talk about some of the philosophical and conceptual issues, including giving quite a bit of space to the life definitions question, which I think has um, probably been the most well-developed of all of the the topics. Mm -hmm. And then after that, we move on to um, ethical and social and related issues, uh, which I I think that progression uh, is is helpful and, and, and shows that there's so many topics worth discussing here. And, and I think there's still quite a bit of low hanging fruit for, for people if they wanted to sink their teeth into um, astrobiology from uh, a humanist perspective, there's still a lot to discuss. And, and I think we, we try to gesture toward that with the organization of the book. Yeah, I think it is. It's a, it's a starting point in a sense, because there, there really is a great deal to talk about here. Um, Kelly, do you have any thoughts on this? Oh, sure. My first thought is I'm delighted that you think we were coherent this time, John, because <laughs> you don't always think that about what I write. Um, no, I think Carlos did did you know a good job of talking about some of the specifics. I, I guess I'd like to run the focus all the way out and talk about the biggest of the big pictures. It, it, for me, the, the common thread throughout the book, and, and this is true of a lot of the work in astrobiology, is that... Um, what people are trying to do is put what they know, believe, aspire to into a radically larger and more inclusive context. So it's not about what it's always been about throughout human history, you know, what humans are doing on this planet. It's about the universe 
and give and given the fact that this planet is a tiny tiny sample of what that universe is like and i think that does interesting things so sometimes it adds impetus to developments that were already underway so there's been a lot of work about how horrible anthropomorphism is uh in particularly in sociology and anthropology as you know john but mm-hmm. you know it's basically impossible to be a anthropocentric person if you also agree that that we're one of many different intelligent species in the universe. Um, sometimes it takes an old question and, and gives it a different kind of spin that, that can refresh it in an interesting way. So on earth environmentalists oftentimes run very different kinds of justifications for protecting the environment together. On the one hand, we protect the environment because it's a necessary part of, of what humans need. We need the rainforest to pr- pr- provide us with oxygen, for example. On the other hand, people have a tendency to talk about the intrinsic value of uh, things in nature. When you go beyond Earth, then at least initially, there's not going to be any sense in which humans are dependent on alien ecosystems because we didn't evolve with them. So if we're going to be environmentalists on other worlds, that's largely going to be a question of intrinsic value. So it changes the focus of those discussions. And sometimes it raises completely new questions or, or at least questions that have been suppressed for a very long time. Biology has always suffered from physics envy because it doesn't have laws in the way that the physicists say scientific laws should be. But um, it's certainly at least possible that if we can actually study alien life forms that have evolved on different worlds under different regimes, that we will be impressed with how common some aspects of evolution and life are between Earth and other places and it may even be that there are some aspects of biology that are truly universal. So take that, physicists. Uh, I, I know that's something that Carlos has worked on, but it, it's an interesting possibility. Yeah, I, I think. Um, well, I think that's actually one of the more you know fascinating aspects about this book and about what both of you guys are doing in in really leading the development of a new field. And so you know, I think. Um, We've had a, I think, a really interesting conversation about what I think is an excellent book. And so kind of apropos this question of a new field and a little bit more generally, what's up next for both of you guys? Could you each talk a bit about your current research and what your plans are for maybe writing in the future? Well, uh, first, I'd like to mention the organization I head, which is the Society mm-hmm. for Social and Conceptual Issues in Astrobiology. Uh, we're really trying, as Carlos mentioned, we're trying to create a diverse interdisciplinary community to support this kind of work on these broader questions in astrobiology and space exploration. And we're open to anyone who's interested and has something, you know, serious to contribute. UFOologists, maybe not, but but pretty much everybody else we're open to. At the moment, we have about 100 different experts, uh, physicists, artists, psychologists. We even have a couple of anthropologists like John. So clearly our standards are not that high. Um, as to my own research, I, recently I've done a few pieces that talk about the ethics of uh, colonization of other worlds. So for example, I just published a piece with an undergraduate student here at Clemson, where we talk about uh, the benefits of genetically engineering settlers. And we actually propose only half tongue in cheek, that creating little green humans might be a good idea. And, you know, of course, John, you and I are, are just starting to think about the possibility of doing another anthology, this time exploring the future of religions under the influence of space exploration and astrobiology. So there's a whole lot to come. People should stay tuned. 
And finally, let me just say that, you know, I am happy to talk to people about this. If you want to know more about my work or about the organization I had, uh, you can look up my contact information, uh, Department of Philosophy and Religion at Clemson, and you'll find me there. And you are welcome to email me and we can talk. Yeah, um, thanks. I also want to, before I forget, to, to um, second everything that Kelly said about the organization and about being very open and willing for people to contact me. My email is just carlos at unr.edu and carlos at philbio.org. They both Brave man, Carlos. <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay with it. Uh, so as to what's coming up in the future for me, I... I feel like I keep trying to move away from life concepts and life definitions, and I keep being uh, pulled back. <laughs> so I'm, I'm working on an encyclopedia entry uh, for that coming up. Um, in terms of astrobiology, my my big overarching project that I'm hoping um, will be done in the next couple of years, uh, maybe right after tenure, or maybe I'll get some ch- time during a sabbatical, is this uh, book on universal biology, um, what we could expect to be the case for life everywhere um, under most understandings of what life is and under most understandings of everywhere. I think uh, <laughs> I am the kind of person that, that thinks that there are a lot of things that we could say about life everywhere in the universe, and that won't actually not only does it not depend on physics, right? Like there's going to be no organisms that have infinite mass or travel at the speed of light. But I think that the the degree to um, uh, the the generality, the degree to which we would expect uh, phenomena of life to be universal, isn't going to depend on physics at all. It's going to come from a different source of justification, namely evolutionary theory. Um, so I'm going to be doing some work on on those issues, and then eventually, I think perhaps trying to to turn a philosophy of astrobiology textbook into something that could be taught at a uh, undergraduate level. I think that would be a fascinating contribution to the field. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that would be. I I, I think there is a a need for. You know, as books like uh, the one we've been talking about today come out, um, there, there's really a need for a, a growing literature that um, makes these uh, teachable things that we can do in class and that we can um, talk about with our students at the undergraduate and, and hopefully also the graduate level. So, well, you guys are really doing fascinating things. Uh, I, I want to thank you both for taking the time to join me on the Science, Technology and Society channel of the New Books Network. Um, I think our readers are going to be left with a lot to think about as they ponder the conversation that we've had and, and hopefully that they uh, read the book. And um, there's a lot to think about here. And it's not simply about the meaning of finding extraterrestrial life. But as I, I have found it, whenever I contemplate these things, it really comes back to thinking about the meaning of life right here on, on Earth. And so thank you very much for joining me. Thanks, John. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Lucky Land 
Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.